He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night. John Katsimatidis here, and this is a TriCast. Uh, we have WABC uh, 770 leading uh, the broadcast, and uh, 970 AM, the answer, and WLIR. And this is a lot of common sense here. We have a common sense Democrat. We have uh, Judge Richard Weinberg, a com- common sense Republican, uh, former Congressman Peter King. And my sidekick here, we have Lydia Serrani. And uh, Lydia, did you have a good weekend? I had a wonderful weekend, and we're going to have an even better show. We momentarily will be speaking with Miranda Devine of the New York Post. She has two great columns out, uh, one regarding Hunter Biden, the other about the immigration crisis. You think it's bad now? Wait till you see what's going to happen in just a couple of weeks. Then Mark Bronovich, he is the attorney general for Arizona. Again, he is one. He is representing Arizona. They're one of three states now suing to stop the migration crisis that's about to happen. Dr. Peter Mikolos, of course, he always has some great insight. And Kathy Wild of the for Alliance to President and CEO for the Partnership for New York City. And uh, she wants to get New York City back open again. And in studio, did you mention we'll also have Frank Carone? He is Mayor Adams, a chief of staff. So we, we're covering all around the world, around the block, and right here in New York City. Well, uh, he's... Uh... Miranda Devine on the line with us right now. Miranda Devine, you are one busy woman. And we were talking about it up in uh, John Katzmatini's office. You should get the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Lovely to speak to you. Um, that's not happening, and it's not something that we're even looking for. You know, I think the Pulitzer has been badly smeared or tarnished in recent years. I mean, look at the New York Times and the Washington Post, which completely ignored our story uh, on Hunter Biden's laptop and uh, got Pulitzers for the fake story about um, Russia collusion and Donald Trump. I mean, our story was true. It was legitimate. We, uh, you know, verified it and did all our due diligence before publishing. And uh, now, 18 months later, those same august publications have come around to admitting that actually our stories stories were right and uh, the laptop is real. Miranda, this is former Congressman Pete King. First of all, I read your column. I love it. And thank you for what you do. Is it possible they could take away those policies and give them to you instead? <laughs> <laughs> we bet on I that? doubt it. I doubt <laughs> it. Do you know that the New York Times still has not given back a Pulitzer that that they got uh, from Walter Duranty uh, back in the times of the Soviet uh, gulags right. uh, saying, and, you know, the, the terrible things they were doing to Ukraine and everyone else at that stage. And he was an apologist for Stalin, and they haven't given back that Pulitzer from 1930, whenever it was. Um, so I doubt very much that, you know, they have any inclination. <laughs> no, I was only kidding. They never would. <laughs> no. Well, speaking not. of a, a debate, uh, Anthony Weiner, who's also a host here at WABC Radio, he has a show every weekend. What time is it, John, with Curtis Lee? Saturday afternoon, about uh, between 2 and 3. And he claims that there's not enough evidence about the Hunter Biden laptop Miranda Devine, what do you say to naysayers out there that they say there's simply not enough evidence? And by the way, Anthony Weiner wants to debate you regarding Hunter Biden. Tell us about your evidence, how thorough you've been, and what is the truth? Is Joe Biden involved or not? What do you know? That's hilarious. He wants to debate me. He's never even called me and asked me. I've got a few questions, actually, for him, too. So that would be very interesting. Well, we can arrange it. You know, we can arrange it prime time. 
And we'll guarantee protection. Equal time. For him. She doesn't Um, need it. (laughs) So, um, uh, look, basically, um, uh, what's he saying? There's not enough evidence to link Joe Biden to any of this? There wasn't enough evidence to to say that Joe Biden was getting the money, that uh, somebody else, it wasn't Hunter saying that I'm cutting him in or anything like that. It was somebody else. There's no proof he's the big guy. And we're just jumping to conclusions and... He did nothing right. wrong. Well, this is just the Democrat line. It's the line that Ron Klain, um, the White House chief of staff, ran yesterday on ABC with George Stephanopoulos when he was just saying that, you know, the president's confident that his family did nothing wrong. And um, anyway, these are private matters that have absolutely nothing to do with Joe Biden or the White House. Uh, that just on its face is ridiculous. Um, you know, um, Hunter Biden and the president's brother, Jim Biden, were getting millions of dollars from China, from Russia, from Ukraine, from Kazakhstan, Romania, you name it. They weren't getting that because of their brilliant business acumen. They were getting it only because they were related to the son of the president. So, um, you know, that, that on its face, you don't even need all the other evidence, which we have amply, not just from the laptop, but also from Hunter Biden's former business partner, Tony Bobulinski, uh, all his material that he hands over to the FBI, all the WhatsApp messages and the emails and the documents, um, and his own testimony about having met with Joe Biden when um, the, the, you know, he was being vetted to, to run this joint venture with China. And, um, but th- th- that's not all. I mean, there's also evidence which was, again, available before the election, just like Tony Bobulinski's evidence and our laptop stories were available. Um, there's the excellent work done by Senators Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson, uh, and they have Treasury Department <coughs> documents which show part of the money trail of millions of dollars going from the Chinese into the coffers of uh, you know, the Biden family and their various associates. So, um, you know, you don't even need well, I that. I don't it. think anybody has any doubt that it went to uh, Hunter Biden. Uh, what I think what Anthony Weiner was trying to say, well, did it make its way to uh, Joe Biden, whether he was vice president or just out of, a, uh, out of office at that time? Well, there is a lot of evidence that we have that, that Joe Biden did personally, financially benefit. Um, you know, there's emails from Hunter Biden saying that um, bitterly that he had to give half his salary to his father, bitterly that he had to support the entire family for 30 years. Um, you know, there's also some evidence of uh, commingling of finances between Hunter and his father. Now, Hunter is a 52-year-old adult. That's not really the average thing that happens. Um, you know, shared bank accounts, um, shared debit cards, and also some evidence that Hunter was expected to pay various household bills for Joe, like a you know a monthly AT and T bill of you know one hundred and eighty dollars or so, but also bigger bills for maintenance and upkeep and renovations on his Delaware home. So uh, you know, I mean, there's certainly some evidence of that. How much do you need? No one's been put under oath. I don't have access to you know Joe Biden's bank account, but there's certainly enough there to, um, to to prompt questions, and we know that... Well, um, I'm that, sure that, Hunter Biden is probably guilty of at least not paying any taxes on that money. 
Well, listen, it's much more than that. I mean, you're talking as if all this is is some quarantine story about a wayward son who didn't pay his taxes, you know, because he was on drugs. That's the line that that the White House wants you to take. The evidence points in a very different direction. There is overwhelming evidence. Um, well, some, not some, some in other, terms of some money other going people. to Joe Biden, but there is some evidence of money going to Joe Biden, and there is enormous amounts of evidence that Joe Biden was uh, meeting with Hunter Biden's business partners when he said to the American people that he didn't know anything about Hunter's overseas business dealings. Um, there's testimony from various people. And, um, and you know, you don't even know, need all that, though. Um, it's what I'm try, trying to say, John, that, you know, I've talked to lawyers. Um, uh, you know, we've got a story tomorrow about the fact that conspiracy, that corruption, um, they are crimes, you know, anywhere in the world where um, the son of a top official, like a vice president, um, is given millions of dollars, um, it, it doesn't matter principles is aware or benefited, that's corruption. And there is evidence that that not only was Joe Biden fully aware and, and involved, um, but also there is some evidence, not a lot, as I said, that he also financially benefited. I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. Uh, now, you wrote another story uh, uh, last two days? Right. She talked about Title 42. I mean, you had some disturbing statistics in there, Miranda Devine, but we know you are very meticulous when it comes to your reporting. We're talking about another 5 million migrants by the midterms, by 18,000 a day if Title 42 is lifted. Title 42 basically allows migrants to come in and not have to even give a reason or be turned away. And by 2024, when we have the next presidential election, we can see an increase of 6% of the U.S. population in migrants. Is this possible? Well, this is just extrapolating the 18,000 a day number that we have border officials have said that they're anticipating and preparing for right. after Title 42 is next next month on May 23. So, I mean, it's just pure maths. Just multiply, right. you know, 18,000 a day by 365. Um, you're talking about, um, I think, you know, six and a half million a year. And if you just take, um, you know, basically from June through to November, um, that's whatever the number I worked out, that's um, before the midterms. You add that to the 2.5 million um, that have already been admitted to that have been encountered by border officials at the border. And um, that's not even counting the gotaways, uh, you know, the, the, the people that, that we don't even, that never even encountered the border officials. And, of course, Border Force is now so incredibly overwhelmed with these numbers that they're not even being able to be proactive and track those gotaways. So, um, you know, these numbers are enormous. They're dangerous. They are transforming the country. And the the cost to the country, um, you know, this has all been done secretly. Unlike an orderly immigration program, and America's always been extremely generous, you know, a million uh, green cards a year, for instance. Um, And America is a beacon you know, the land of milk and honey for so many poorer people in countries around the world. Um, So there has to be some sort of process to choose and filter out who you're going to let in. But that's not happening at the border. And so these people um, have been handed this open invitation by Joe Biden. And um, and they're being uh, at the border. They're just being flown around all over the country. We 
last night um, uh, intercepted one uh, that came from the El Paso via Oklahoma City and landed uh, around 11.30 last night at White Plains. Now, um, if you remember last October, um, we had uh, found a whole lot of uh, those planes were flying in. I got a tip off from somebody um, and we went out with a photographer and uh, recorded those planes coming in and the migrants coming off them and um, being put onto charter buses and sent to, you know, one lot was set off, let off at the New Jersey Turnpike, another lot was sent to some Catholic orphanage in Long Island and um, so on. And so we, we, we did all that in October and then there was a huge outcry and those flights stopped. But just from, you know, a publicly available flight data, we found that they started again in February and just so happened that one came in last night um, just after I'd filed my column. So um, I'm going to be on Tucker Carlson tonight uh, on Fox News talking about that. Right. Another flight to Westchester County and nobody even knows anything about it. Speaking of, I just want to also touch base back on Hunter Biden. Taxpayers, according to The New York Post, are reportedly shelling out more than $30,000 a month so the Secret Service can rent an estate in the upscale celebrity enclave of Malibu to protect Hunter Biden, who's living nearby in a resort-style home with enchanting panoramic views of the Pacific Ocean. Is this true? And if that's just the rent there, who's paying for the Secret Service agents? <laughs> I mean, look, I'm assuming that's true. That's not our story. But, um, I mean, it's no surprise. And, you know, to be fair, that happens with every administration. Um, you know, all the family members uh, all get, you know, get Secret Service protection. And, um, and you know, with Hunter Biden, he just happens to be living in a very ritzy neighbourhood. So if the Secret Service, they have to be nearby. I mean, he's not, not obviously allowing them to be on his property, even though he's got a huge house he's renting for 20000 a month. But um, they've obviously had to get a, a house close by and their expensive rents there. So I think I think the house is six bedrooms, probably enough for, for all the agents to have a bedroom. I mean, pretty nice life, really. And apparently they also, I mean, Secret Service has to have a house in um, Rehoboth Beach in Delaware and also in Greenville, Delaware, the two um, beautiful houses of Joe Biden. And so, again, these are not cheap neighbourhoods. And, you know, but the same um, would have been the case for the Trumps as well. And, you know, it's not cheap to, to have a place near Trump Tower or in Trump Tower. I don't know if they were in there or, you know, any of the other, um, uh, you know, very nice places that, that these, these presidents and their families end up living in or going going on holidays to uh, their Secret Service has to tag along with them. Miranda, for your research... to put their head. Miranda, uh, excuse me. Uh, for your research, how is the statements of uh, Bobulinski, how have they held up? Oh, 100%. Everything he said, um, you know, he was very careful and very deliberate. Everything he said, every document he provided um, has, has panned out, has been corroborated, and um, it's true. And he's just you know, you could not have uh, a more upright and um, honest witness. Miranda, and, it's, uh, uh, it's Richard yeah. Weinberg. Where do you think the uh, Delaware grand jury is going to go in terms of the investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office? Well, I don't know. I mean, it started off, we're told, as a tax um, evasion inquiry back in 2018. And um, we now know that it's expanded to include money laundering and uh, also violations of the foreign Agents Registration Act, the, the foreign lobbying uh, rules, and um, they're criminal charges. And 
Also, they're looking at um, a democratic lobbying shop called Blue Star Strategies that was heavily involved in uh, Burisma, um, you know, that Ukrainian energy company in, in sort of lobbying or help, anyway, in advising them. So, uh, and, and, you know, I'm told that a lot of the questions, half the questions being asked are about Blue Star Strategies. Um, and we saw the New York Times a couple of weeks ago when they, the first time when they, the dam burst and actually admitted that the laptop was true in the 24th paragraph, the story was actually about um, rehearsing Hunter Biden's legal defences for those three potential criminal charges or, you know, uh, offences. So, so even uh, when they admit it, they're running a cover for him. Well, I don't know running a cover, but I mean, they're obviously running what they're hoping that he can get out of any serious, char- you know, any serious indictments. So, um, for instance, they said he's paid back $1 million in unpaid taxes he had to borrow from uh, a friend um, and or a kind benefactor. Um, and so, but that, that really doesn't help because the investigation had already started. Um, you would know as a judge. Um, and then on on uh, Farah, they said that um, he could, uh, you know, retroactively um, register as a foreign agent and therefore maybe the criminal charges would be downgraded to civil charges. And then they said um, that somehow that would make the money laundering charge go away because it's never done as a standalone charge. But, um, you know, I've talked to law- I've run that by lawyers and they say that's nonsense. But obviously that's what, that's what Hunter's lawyers are trying. And this flight that you mentioned that came in last night to the Westchester County Airport, uh, I mean, is there any, do we know for sure that, because I I live in Westchester County and I've been told that the leaders know nothing about it. Nobody gets a heads up about it. They just come in and the buses, you know, pick them up and they disperse them throughout the country. Yeah, no, um, look, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because they've changed um, their sort of, you know, their routines from what they were doing last year when we were photographing them. Um, it was easy to photograph them then and see the, the uh, migrants come off the plane um, because uh, it was just in a different part of the tarmac. It's still a private part of the tarmac. It was at Ross Aviation West. Now it's at Ross Aviation East, which is on the other side um, of the tarmac. So um, our brilliant photographer, um, Chris Sadowski, managed to get some very long-distance um, shots of so that John, John Katzmatidis, what does that tell you when they're doing things in the cloak of darkness, in the dead of night, and in away from a public view? What was the old expression? Something's rotten in Denmark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, well, uh, maybe we'll we maybe we will get you guys together, and uh, you never know if you guys want to do that, and. Uh, <laughs> It'll be, a, uh, well, it'll be an exciting, it'll be an exciting event. Well, I, I don't want to be too mean to him because I think he's got absolutely zero evidence. And obviously, I've written a book on the laptop, and I've spent a year immersed in it and have lots of sources. And he has none of that, so um, it would be a pretty one-sided uh, competition. <laughs> but I'm, I'm all for it. I'm happy to do it. And I would ask him some questions of my own. So yeah. he just have to have to uh, be be up for that. I will uh, let him know. Uh, thank okay. you for uh, coming on today, and thank you for everything you go- do to have uh, truth in our uh, in America. Brilliant. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. thank you to all of you. Let's take a break, and when we come back... We're going to speak with the Attorney General of Arizona regarding the migrant crisis, and then I'm also going to bring, you, bring attention. There's a new story that just broke regarding BLM. The hypocrisy knows no bounds. Stay tuned. 
Talk Radio 77 WABC. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katsimatidis Cats at Night show. Right now on the line for us, we have Attorney General of Arizona, Mark Bronovich. How are you, sir? I'm very well. How are you guys doing? Well, New York is still cold. We're waiting for spring to come. <laughs> Isn't that? Don't you guys on the East Coast have some gopher or something like that tells you when it's all uh, time to, for the snow to stop? Blasio killed one. We, we have a, uh, a, a hot phone that goes straight up. He's talking about the, uh, what's it called? Groundhog. The groundhog. The groundhog yeah. that yes, Blasio yes, kills, yes. yes. This is former Congressman yes. Pete King. Actually, Mayor yes. de Blasio killed him a few years ago. Yeah. He, he did. Did he face charges for murder? I used to work at the Department of Justice and had a security clearance, and in the background check, they ask you if you've ever been to any communist countries, and they used to at least, and I said, no, but I once spent two weeks in New York, so. <laughs> oh, there you have it. Um, yes. Before we get to you, I wanted to, I was teasing before about the Black Lives Matter. Maybe I can get your opinion on this, too. So Black Lives Matter, the New York New York Magazine has now released an article regarding that they bought a $6 million property with uh, donations to Black Lives Matter, and they're calling it a campus. They put it in an LLC to try to disguise who actually bought it, this and that. It's just incredible to me that the media is not really picking this story up, and we saw what happened all across the country with the riots, and it's just, it's it's incredible. Well, my family actually fled communism, and what I think is going on right now with the progressive left, the far left, and you know, Black Lives Matter is part of this, is that it's all about uh, destroying our institutions, and whether that's you know the the churches and synagogues, whether it's you know um, education, well they've already taken over education, but it, but even law enforcement. And so what they're trying to do is get a generation of people to think that this country is so fundamentally flawed that they can then bring on their neo-Marxist revolution. And that's why you know things like you know critical race theory and the 1619 project are so dangerous because they're fundamentally designed to get middle class people to hate this country where did your family come from former yugoslavia that's where look at that that's where my family's from from montenegro oh yes and sort of it's well we're ethnic albanian but we're but we're so ethnic I, but, we're ethnic albanian from montenegro so we say well, i i um they're the obviously you know albania and montenegro share a border but yes i am a very i'm a, a Yes, a proud Montenegrin. So. Well, it's a beautiful country. So tell it us, you're one country. of attorney generals. You're one of three states now fighting to the repeal of Title 42. Explain to our listeners what is Title 42 and just how devastating this impact could be for the entire country, not just for Arizona. Well, Title 42 is a common sense policy. It's part of the U.S. code, and it basically allows the federal government to turn over um, migrants um, without having to go through an asylum hearing, you know, basically turn them away before they come to the United States and then, you know, request asylum or request a hearing. So it was something that started during the Trump administration where they used that for public health reasons, and more than a million people were turned away, about 1.7 actually. And so we know that during when President Biden became president, uh, when he took office, more than 2 million people have illegally entered this country. And so what Title 42 has done is essentially stopped um, the amount of illegal people coming into the country from doubling. And we know from estimates, even DHS, that if indeed it's rescinded, you will see up to 18,000 people a day illegally entering our country. And just to put that in context, that's 
540,000 people in one month. It's like the entire population of, you know, Baltimore, Maryland, or Kansas City, Missouri. And, you know, the cartels, and I was a gang prosecutor for years, the cartels make money off every single, obviously, drug coming across the border, but they also make money off people coming across the border. And so anytime you have this huge influx of legal migration, you have to say to yourself, this is enriching and empowering the drug cartels that are obviously harming uh, our quality of life and causing so much crime and damage in our communities. General, I, I saw that firsthand. I was in Congress. My district included uh, almost the uh, ground zero for MS-13 in Central Ice in Brentwood. We had 25 brutal murders in a year and a half. Thank God President Trump got involved and was able to uh, squelch them. But the fact is they're still there. It all came during the uh, illegal immigrant migration, including the uh, kids who were coming across the border in 2014. People thought these were innocent kids. A number of them were either MS-13 themselves or their family members in MS-13. And we had this, again, and all the murders, all these brutal, horrific slayings were carried out against other immigrants. And it was just a brutality. It wasn't even money involved or anything. It was strictly uh, out-and-out brutality. Uh, they uh, would mutilate bodies, video them, and send them to the family members just to put the fear of God into them. And uh, it all they all came, almost all came across illegally. Yeah, well, Congressman, it obviously you have this gang and cartel fueled violence that impacts people. But a lot of times people don't appreciate that as a result of the flood of methamphetamine and um, fentanyl coming into the country, people are dying every day. And we know the reports that literally more than 100,000 Americans died last year as a result of those drugs. In Arizona, 9 million illegal fentanyl pills were seized just last year. And just to put that in context, two milligrams, like two grains of salt of fentanyl can be deadly. And that's enough fentanyl to kill the entire population of the state. And we know, and I know as a prosecutor, that the price of fentanyl is declining all over the country. In Arizona, the street value of a pill has gone from about 20 bucks a pill down to now now about $5 a pill. And so the cartels are flooding the market. And as a result of that, more people's nieces, nephews, sons, daughters are going to die and more people will become dependent on drugs. And that's going to also have a fiscal impact to society. So this is a, there, there is a war going on and people need to recognize that border security is national security. Now tell us about Arizona. Who's running for election this November? Because uh, we've been talking uh, with many people, and so goes uh, this November, so goes our country. Yeah, well, um, I'm obviously the attorney general of this great state, and I had never run for office before I ran for AG, but I was always brought up with a real strong sense that we have an obligation to give back for this, to this country. And when you're the government, you can take away people's livelihoods, life, liberty, property, and I'm a big believer in constitutional government. And so not only am I the attorney general, but I'm also actually running for the U.S. Senate as well because I want to take these battles. You know, I've been to the Supreme Court. In fact, I was just there six weeks ago arguing against the Biden administration on a case. I argued against the DNC and Brnovich v. DNC last year. And so I want to take these battles from the courtroom into the halls of Congress because we need people that understand that the states created the federal government. The federal government didn't create the states. And we need this return of federalism because any government that's big enough to give you everything is big enough to take it away. And it's about time we restored federalism into this country. Tell us about the Arizona borders. What's actually going on there? Uh, The governor, the current governor, is he helping in any way with state troopers or with uh, with uh, National Guard? 
Well, we actually recently issued an opinion, John, that said what is happening on our southern border constitutes um, of the legal definition of an invasion. But it's ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm an attorney general, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a, I'm a field general, and so it's up to the governor to decide what to do with that. Now, the governor has deployed some resources, um, but, you know, I, I do feel that there's always more we can do. But at the end of the day, let us not forget that when it comes to national security, and border security. That is the job of the federal government. And it shouldn't be up to Arizona taxpayers to, to build a wall or to try to secure the border because that's the federal government's job. And the federal government has the tools. We pay our taxes for that. And ultimately, do not forget that 80%, you know, it's estimated 80% of the fentanyl or the drugs coming through our border now are not going to stay in Arizona. They're coming to New York. They're coming to Maryland. They're coming to Chicago. And so this is a national crisis. It's a national problem. And it shouldn't be left to Arizona and Texas to solve this for the rest of the country. General Branovich, uh, this is just not sustainable for the country, aside from the fact of the fentanyl, the drug dealing, the sex trafficking and all those horrible things regarding law and order, who's going to educate all of these migrants? Who's going to house them? Who's going to give them medical care? The taxpayers will have to pay for this, and we're already seeing higher soaring inflation rates that don't seem to be abating anytime soon. Well, we know that the Biden administration has made a mess, obviously, of the economy and inflation's at a 40-year high. And, you know, anybody that goes to the gas station or the grocery stores knows um, how much harm Joe Biden's causing. And sometimes people don't see it when it comes to the border. And the media, the mainstream media doesn't cover a lot of this stuff. I mean, literally six weeks ago, I was at the U.S. Supreme Court arguing a case over the public charge rule. Now, this is a common sense statute that's been on the books for more than 100 years in the United States that basically says if you're not a citizen, you have to be able to support yourself. The Trump administration interpreted that rule to basically mean you can't be on welfare for more than one year of your first three years here. Because we are indeed a land of immigrants, we are not supposed to be the land of the welfare state. We want people to come here. They're going to be self-sufficient, um, that want to become part of the American dream. And so the Biden administration tried to illegally withdraw that rule. That's why I was arguing at the Supreme Court. And that essentially would open the door and cause the states to have to subsidize you know, everything from costs related to, to housing, to the food stamps, to other welfare benefits. So Joe Biden and the Biden administration has essentially said, screw you to middle class American taxpayers. And he cares more about he cares more about Central America than he does about middle America. And it breaks my heart as a first generation American to say that about our president. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and uh, keep fighting because it's like flying through a thunderstorm. There's always the other side. Thank you so much for coming yes. on. Thank you, thank you guys for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Mihalos has some break, breaking news. John Breaking news, WABC. And the man with that breaking news, Dr. Peter Mikolos, who has the latest on a revolutionary COVID pill, Dr. Mikolos. Actually, it's the revolutionary nasal spray oh, vaccine that the Russians came out with the Gamala, which has been around for a long time. They've been around for uh, about seven decades in Russia, and they uh, came out, of course, with the first uh, vaccine uh, and the Sputnik vaccine, and now they have the Sputnik nasal spray. So they've made a nasal spray version, just like we have here in the United States for the flu for children. 
there was a spray version of the flu vaccine. They came out with the first spray version in the nose of the COVID vac- of the COVID vaccine. So basically, the uh, COVID virus is attenuated, meaning it can't really transmit. But the body recognizes it as being COVID and launches antibodies right in the upper respiratory uh, airway and the sinuses and the nose, so that when you are exposed to real COVID. It's already and fired up with antibodies to try to lock it down before it can spread and replicate. And of course, the, uh, they also repurposed an old Japanese drug called a Fabiflu uh, and uh, Avigan. It's also known as the chemical name, and they call it a Vifavir, and they're having great success in giving it to people in the first five days. In addition, um, the other news that's been coming out is the Molnupiravir, the Merck drug, which initially they thought it was only 30% successful, but in that study, they were giving it to people up, up to seven days out. But in Australia, they found that if you give it the first three days when you test positive, they're getting much better results with higher efficacy and 80% chance that you won't go on to a worse case of COVID. And that's readily now available in many of the pharmacies uh, in the tri-state area. And also on COVID.gov, we know that the government set up a website. One of the things we talked about on WABC is test to treat center. So you test and then right away you can immediately get the treatment and that's going to help reduce cases. On the other side of the planet, of course, we're hearing in Shanghai, we're seeing major lockdowns of major cities, a city of 26 million people, a big manufacturing city, and these COVID lockdowns will further disrupt the supply chains and for parts and various other things that we use here in the United States. A reminder that we need to be self-sufficient and start making our own things and supply chains. And again, China actually, you know, has done a great job of being a supplier of inexpensive products. But now we've learned that we need to start doing things ourselves a little bit. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in uh, deep trouble. And the other good news is that the new variant uh, has uh, an antibody from Eli Lilly that's able to neutralize this new subvariant with Omicron that's combined, that's affecting people around the world. And we're uh, beefing up and Eli Lilly's cranking it out and it's readily available in all the hospitals in tri-state areas. So people who are getting sick are able to get their infusions. So, so the latest breakout is, the latest breakout is not going to be anything that we're it's going to be out of control. Well, it won't be as long as uh, we have this continuation. We're in a different place. And then the other thing, the FDA five hours ago announced that it also says that we really need to start making COVID variant-specific vaccines because the vaccines we're getting now in the boosters are specifically designed for the were designed for the Alpha Wuhan original variant, which does give you a certain amount of immunity, decreased hospitalizations, but cases, for example, in Suffolk County two weeks ago there were 54 cases, 100% were were uh, vaccinated people, so it does give you some protection from ending up on a ventilator, but we really need as Albert Borla from Pfizer said, we really need variant-specific vaccines that will cover Alpha, Delta, and the new subvariant. And uh, Borla says that they think that they will have a vaccine not only that will cover multiple variants, just like we update the flu vaccine with multiple variants, but that will also give immunity for up to a year, whereas now it seems that the immunity with these current vaccines starts to wane after six months. But again, it's not we're not in the same situation because you can now get treatment 
So it's just like the, with Thank the flu vaccine, many people choose not to get it, but you can get treatment. Thank you, Peter. We have a special guest in the, in the studio. Just walked in now. We have to get to him. Thank you so much, Peter Michalos, for the update, and we'll catch up with you again. Thanks for getting the truth out on the Cats Roundtable. In in the studio with us now, we just walked in. We have Frank Caron. He's the chief of staff of Mayor Eric Adams. And uh, uh, how are you? Good evening. Hello, John, and thank you for having me once again. It's a real pleasure, as always, to be here and, and, and love the show. And um, I'm doing well, enjoying myself. Well, uh, you know, uh, you guys, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things to do in New York. And uh, give, us a, give us a report. Uh, it looks like the number one thing to take care of is make sure people are safe. Uh, give us an update. Where, where the heck are we? So, so the, the, with, with this mayor who, who works 24 hours, just telling the congressman that, you know, he's a, an incredibly hardworking individual. He starts very, very early, ends very, very late. So the report could change minute to minute. Um, and I'm, I'm so proud of working for a person who's so really just dedicated every waking minute of his life for fulfilling the mission that the, the people, um, elected him to do. So where we are, look, we are, mayor still focused, zeroing in on public safety. He says it over and over again. The pathway to prosperity is public safety. And he also says very often, there's not one quick fix. It's multi-layered. There's both long-term and, and, and short-term things that he's concerned about and he's ordering his administration to do. And he's also mindful of what's in his control and what's outside of his control. Not everything and every decision is in within the span of his control. But what is in his control is the police department um, advocating for policies that believe is right, using – um, you know, the power of his speech to, you know, try to advocate for things that he thinks is right. And he's also willing to compromise when he thinks compromise is appropriate. Um, so we have, uh, we're, we're grateful to be working with the legislature and the governor to see what, what you know, results come out of their work and wh- whatever they decide, you know, we'll have to live with and we'll do our job either way. Are you hoping for some common sense to come out of this budget uh, process? Because they usually take uh, things that they don't necessarily like and throw it into the budget, and they can't blame anybody for it. Well, Congressman will tell you about how the legislature works. We you know, never it's, did that in Washington. <laughs> never. <laughs> you, know, it's a, you could call it a stew. You could yeah. call it a, an amalgam. You could call it whatever you want to call it, a mosaic. But it's right. is first of all, you have many different interests, individuals elected to represent a district, all coming together, trying to do what they, the best they can first for their constituents and then for the greater good. Um, but I, you know, talk, talking to the elected officials and those in charge, and speaker, and and uh, some the majority leader and, and and the governor's team, they generally trying to do what they feel is right. So, so to, is that common sense? Yes, um, but but sometimes common sense depends upon who you're speaking to, right? And people believe what they're doing is right, and if it disagrees with your position, your job is to try to convince them otherwise, but if you can't find common ground and, and bring the good out of that. Again, we're speaking to the uh, Mayor Adams Chief of Staff, Frank Carone. You know, we keep hearing about that we want to change, you know, reform the bail reform. And then you hear the legislators, Stuart Cousins, you hear Carl Hasty, they say, well, we don't have the data. This is happening all across the country, you know, the rising crime. But Frank Carone, regarding the anti-crime unit, seven out of the 10, like 70 percent of the people that the cops are are arresting, thanks to Mayor Adams initiative to put them back out on the streets. They are repeat offenders. Isn't that enough? Isn't that the data right there? I mean, what more do you need? The fact that the majority, 70% of these people that they are arresting are repeat offenders. Well, you know, that's a, it's a great point. And the neighborhood safety units that did, did make those arrests and confiscated 22 guns off the street. And each one of those guns, uh, as the mayor likes to say, it's not just the bullet that does the damage. It's the, it's the bullet, it's the emotions, and it's the after effects. So those are 
those are incredible results um, based on the policies that the mayor espoused with the police commissioner and team. But look, the the elected officials, uh, they all want public safety. They all want safe streets. No, no one's advocating for, for crime and, and for victims to be uh, attacked and injured the way they are. But they have reasonable differences on how they think best to get there. We have a different view and, you know, they have other views. And it's our job to find, uh, hopefully convince them of our views. But if not, we still have to, we still have to govern. We still have to do our job and we will. Frank Caronin, fighting crime. Uh, the police commissioner is very important. I have a personal interest here. I had the privilege of seeing uh, Keyshawn Sewell up close when she worked in Nassau County. How is she doing in New York City? And, again, I have the greatest confidence in her. But, again, it's a different world now being in New York City. Yeah, the police commissioner, Sewell, is, is, uh, she's terrific. She, again, is an extremely hard worker, takes her job very, very seriously, has engendered the support of the rank and file, knows how to speak to the press, uh, is prepared. Uh, she just is the full package. And we knew that right away after interviewing her. It was crystal clear from my perspective, that she was the right candidate, and we're pleased. You know, I didn't. Uh, I actually grew up in Queens, in Sunnyside. I went to high school and college in Brooklyn. My father was from Brooklyn. Uh, do you and the mayor have the Brooklyn edge that I think is really needed to turn they the city swag, around? They got swag, it's called. Wait a second. Well, this is from someone who's from Queens and moved out to Long Island. How yeah, but I, 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 no, I, I'm more for the edge. I loved it. I loved being in high school and college in Brooklyn. Brooklyn people have a, a, a way of cutting through swagger. and getting it done. Yeah, we call it swagger. There's also <laughs> there's a certain grittiness that okay. you think we... The uh, the city life and borough life, you know, teaches you, and that grit we kind of look for. And Mayor calls it also emotional intelligence. Someone who's and the street smarts too. Yeah, there's something to the basketball yeah. fields and the and the parks yeah. where you get to learn how to interact with your yeah. peers and you know f- fix problems. Frank Brown, we also have uh, with us on the other line uh, Kathy Wild, who wants to get the city open like all of us, and she had a few comments. Uh, Kathy, are you there? Here, yes, John. Tommy, can right. we get the city open? Uh, what do you when you talk to the big companies that you represent in, in the city? Uh, what are they saying? Well, in fact, we had a meeting of three hundred of them on Thursday, which you missed, John, with uh, the mayor and Commissioner Sewell. Who I want to reiterate what Frank said: the commissioner is just terrific. She um, she really inspires confidence. She has facts at her command. She's got a plan, which is what we've been waiting for in terms of the restoration of a safe city. And uh, she has the full support of the mayor, which I think is is great. And the business community is standing full force behind the mayor. And I know Frank's doing 24-7 work with him every day, but they're getting a lot done. And I think we're going to see the results. Frank Caron, uh, any comments on getting our city reopened? I mean, there was an alarming number the other day in the front page of the Post mm-hmm. that 40% of the students uh, going to public schools don't just come. Yeah, they, well, there's an absentees. How do you say absentee rate? And then it, it could even be higher than that, according to the Post article. Yeah, so that that that, that article was a little bit uh this deceiving and you know, not on perhaps not on purpose but it was not of the overall population it was a smaller subset so we are, we had a meeting on that this morning we're zeroing in on exactly who that is why that is what we can, what can we do about it but it's a much smaller subset than the article led you to believe when you read it at first blush what percentage? let me go back john to your go question ahead. about are we reopening we are reopening we've probably got 40 to 50 percent of employees back in the office at this point and there's 
great push going on, and, and the mayor has encouraged this, but there's a great push going on from employers to make the being in the office a priority. And people are going to, it's going to be gradual, and there's still some concerns about the COVID, but basically, as long as the mayor and his team are tackling the public safety issue, we're going to see real fast return. Well, Kathy Wilde, hold on. To, uh, uh, Frank, uh, hold on. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back for at least 10 more minutes. Thank you. Let's take that break, and when we come back, we'll find out did the employees of Goldman Sachs really tell the bosses that told them to come to work to pound sand? Let's take that break. It's a common sense recap of the big stories. It's Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. In studio with us, we have Congressman Peter King, of course, John Katzmatidis, and Mayor Adams, Chief of Staff. On the line, we have Kathy Wild. Kathy Wild, we are John. You were mentioning about Goldman Sachs, right? That the employees, uh, what, what was it? What did they you say? They told the bosses to pound sand when he, he told them to come back to work. What do you hear, Kathy? I hear that that was a tweet by a couple of analysts, but that is not going to be the rule. Goldman Sachs wants their people back because they perform better. There have been studies that show that the analysts who work remotely for the past two years have had half the education that those previously who were in the office. So they're going to be back, and there's heavy competition for those jobs. Goldman Sachs doesn't have any trouble hiring the best. I agree with you. We want everybody to come back. New York is going to open up. And the people that think they're going to stay home, they're going to pound sand because you're going to be out of a job soon. New York is full of very ambitious people. The young people think, well, maybe somehow I can get away with this. You know, it's not possible. And if they want to be successful, they're going to be back in the office. Not every day, not every minute, but back in the office most of the time. Frank Caron, the, the mic is yours for the rest of the uh uh, oh, thank you, John. Of the time. Tell us, uh, what do you think? Well, first of all, I'm trying to figure out if I've ever heard pound sand before, and I don't know that I did, but I'm glad I learned a new phrase here. <laughs> that must be the kindergarten version. But at least um, I think Kathy's right, and I think you're right, and I'm glad it was only just a tweet. But, um, yeah, that, it's still a challenge getting, you know, getting some of the folks uh, to, you know, understand that, you know, we all live in an ecosystem, and, and, and we would, Congressman King and I were just talking off air, and, you know, there's this certain camaraderie and exchange of ideas that happens when you're in the office. There's a certain magic, uh, this sort of invisible hand, if you will, that occurs. So, so, and also not just that, this ecosystem is the, the, you know, taking the subway, taking a car, or, or paying the parking attendant if you drive, paying an Uber or a taxi cab if you're in a, if you're transporting that way, or using the train system if that's how, or a bus. And then it's paying for lunches and, and, you know, cl- uh, clothes cleaners and, and shoe shiners and shopkeepers. This is the entire ecosystem of the city. So it's a moral obligation. And it's selfish to stay home. It's a moral obligation to come to work and feed into that ecosystem if you truly care about New York. How, how can we get uh, some of the employees say that uh, uh, they're worried about the subways, they're worried about the streets? Um, how can we make them feel safer? Well, that, that's a, a, it always, again, pivots back to how we started the conversation, which is public safety and clean. Uh, subways, safe subways. So that's why the mayor put forth his gun safety plan. That's why we're advocating as hard as we can to first identify the issue for what it is and be intellectually honest about that and then put a plan in place to do that, which we have done. And also 
you know, overall cleanliness. We're, we, we haven't forgotten about that. We have a plan coming out, um, street cleaners and, and, and encouraging and empowering sanitation and the great group of young men and women there to make sure that the city looks alive, feels alive and, and is clean. But, but also, you know, Kathy and the partnership, their, their, um, advice, their input, uh, the feedback we get. And, and that's, what's wonderful about Mayor Adams. He's, uh, humble enough to listen. Doesn't have to agree with everyone's opinions, but he takes it all in and helps us and shares it with the team. We're very often we do this as a team approach, many people as well. And, and, and Kathy's, uh, um, organization and the feedback we get, for things that we can do to help based on that feedback is really important for us to, you know, go forward with certain policies to, to get people back to work and feel safe and feel comfortable and overall just be happy. Frank Carone, I have to ask about the masks for the toddlers. What is the deal behind it? Because so many parents were hopeful that it was, the, you know, COVID was over. We know that kids have a, almost a minuscule risk of catching COVID. What is behind Mayor Adams still wanting this and appealing the ruling and having the stay. This is another example of the mayor's leadership on doing something that's you know controversial and and and, and you know uh, gets him a lot of criticism for. But the mayor um, was listening and and very very carefully to his healthcare professionals, and we saw the uptick in the new variant, and it is increasing every day. And the mask um, mandate on the young kids. There are very hot opinions on both sides. But we thought just in the abundance of caution, just to prevent even one really bad illness, it's worth it to keep it for another week or so just to see how the numbers, uh, how the numbers, um, gauge. And then we'll, we're looking at it every single day. It, we don't just forget it and pick it up on Monday. Every morning we get the numbers, the new infections, and we just base policy based on what we feel for the greater good of the 8.8 million people, not just you know, some folks were allowed. Before we run out of time, as Republican, let me just say, I think that the agenda that Mayor Adams has laid out to fight crime, if it's carried out and supported, is you know, uh, the way to go. And this should not be a partisan effort, so I'm saying that as Republican. I've had the privilege of, uh, uh, you know, being with the mayor a few times. I don't, uh, I don't pretend to know him. But what he's laid out, I think, can be very, very effective. It's important for all New Yorkers. John has always said this, fighting crime should not be a partisan issue. So I wish you and the mayor very well. and wish you a lot of luck in your job, I tell you. <laughs> Uh, Kathy thank you, Wild, Kathy. one last question. We're almost out of time. Well, I just want to pile on with uh, Peter and Frank and say the mayor has the right agenda and he needs all of our support and on a bipartisan basis to get there. Hopefully we're going to see some progress in the governor's state budget in the next 24, 48 hours uh, on many of these same issues. She and the mayor are in lockstep. So hopefully we're going to make it. Thank you, Kathy Wild. Thank you, Frank Carone, Chief of Staff of Mayor Adams, and uh, former Congressman Peter King. Thank you. And Lydia Serrani, my sidekick. Thank you. And I don't know, we lost uh, Richard Weinberg someplace. He was here just a minute ago. He's trying a case somewhere. <laughs> well, Frank Carone, last, uh, last uh, 10 seconds. John, thank you again for the invitation and for all you do for the city. And though I know you really come from the heart, everything you do, and really appreciate that and look forward to days ahead. Well, God bless you. God bless Mayor Adams. And uh, God bless New York. And we need a blessing. And let's, let's get New York open. Thank you. And God bless America.